I am fully aware that, that, that I, I, I do tend to go on a bit about this because I, it is like, really, really interesting. We're just, we're just chasing yeah. the content, Mark. You know, yeah, um, yeah we're content creators and it's uh, <laughs> a major role here. We're really hoping that our figures will boost up. You know, the, the last podcast I put out, you know, my, for my folk, you know, I get six listens. Yeah, you'll <laughs> break, break, break into double figures. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to this, you'll probably be fully aware that this is the second or part two of a lockdown conversation with the Reverend Dr. Mark Wilson about the Presbyterian Church and Ulster Unionism at the first half of the 20th century. We really hope that you'll find this second part of the conversation as instructive as the first. Well, obviously, um, another big factor that came into this at that kind of uh, 1920, 1921 was the formation of Northern Ireland itself. Yeah, yeah. how, how did that affect Presbyterians? Because we are, of course, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there was a border. Yeah. Uh, and how, how, you know, how psychologically did that affect Presbyterianism on this island? Well, um, the church had been really consciously Irish. I think that something that people don't quite understand about Ulster Unionism is that Ulster Unionists have a very strong Irish identity. Ulster Unionists would have referred to themselves as Irish. They used the Irish language in their sloganizing. They had distinctively Irish cultural interests and they were they were an, they had an all-island outlook. Uh, Ulster Unionism was uh, an ideology of last resort because they couldn't prevent the formation of a Catholic nationalist parliament in the south and west. So there was an enormous psychological effect on Irish Presbyterianism when it came to pass that there were two states in the island of Ireland and the southern state was really quite different to what went before. The Catholic Church was effectively established in the southern state in a way that um, in a way that no church had been since the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland and the small Presbyterian community there was not especially well treated and it dissolved like snow off a dike. Um, you can look in the the General Assembly reports from 1914 to 1926. Family after family leaves, congregation after congregation closes. In Northern Ireland, Presbyterians came up with uh, an Ulster Scots identity. Uh, and the Ulster Scots identity had been about since the end of the 19th century in Presbyterianism. It was a religious identity but they came up with it as a political identity as well and a national identity. And that drove a wedge between the church in the six county Ulster of Northern Ireland and the nine county uh, Ulster of the province of Ulster and the rest of Ireland. So there was a serious division setting in in terms of the way that we thought of ourselves and the way that we looked at ourselves. Uh, And you can certainly see that in the church now. And the church in the south and the west is as different from Northern Presbyterianism as as though it were another denomination in many ways. But the, the in, in Northern Ireland, the Presbyterian Church didn't have much influence, really, because of our, our institutional crises, because of the way we pre- prioritised internal unity over external um, effectiveness. The 
the Northern Ireland government said not to pay any attention to it, really. And yet they um, paid in our, our theological college. Well, they paid, they paid high rent for it. Um, <laughs> they, 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 weren't, they weren't given it. Um, they weren't given it. Mind you, they, there, was, there was one of the very few um, discussions of Presbyterianism in the Northern Ireland cabinet was whenever uh, the moderator made frantic representations to James Craig uh, about the possibility of alcohol being sold in the uh, parliamentary bar in, in Assemblies College. And uh, the, uh, the deputy prime minister was a man called Hugh Pollock, who was an elder in Rosemary Street. And uh, he pr proposed that they shouldn't discuss this and it should be repaired to the parliamentary kitchen committee, which it was. And, uh, and the, proposal, the proposal for, for prohibition came to nothing. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, high, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was high part stuff. But, I mean, the Presbyterian ministers were in the cabinet. Um, in, in the mid-40s, there were two Presbyterian ministers in the cabinet. There was uh, the Minister for, um, for Education and the Minister of Agriculture were both Presbyterian ministers. Minister for Education was a professor at Assemblies. The Minister for Agriculture was a parish minister from Londonderry. And oddly, it doesn't seem to have, have involved any influence of the church at all over the government. These two individuals were unionist individuals who happened to be Presbyterian ministers, but they didn't listen to what the General Assembly said in political or social things. They just did what they thought was right. How how big, Mark, was the influence of, of modernist thought? You know, once we get into like so the nineteen thirties, um, uh, you know, a lot of people would pinpoint that as as a kind of time to, out of the twenties into the thirties when modernism starts to to really catch grip of the general yeah. assembly. Yeah, absolutely. But there's no question about it. The general assembly was controlled by by factions of ministers who were modernists. But the compromise that they had made with the fundamentalists was that no one would try to completely exclude anyone else. So uh, the reason why, even whenever the General Assembly was dominated by modernists, that evangelicals weren't just kicked out of the church, as they were in the Church of Scotland, is that they had that they had that understanding that in order to avoid another civil war in the church, that there would be an accommodation of all of all views, and that's only really breaking down to a little, to a small extent now. It was, it was the way that the church worked for a hundred years. And it's, it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still what's largely going on in the church now, though, um, though, uh, and a evangelical faction has, has taken more control of the church now than it ever has in the past. But the internal, the internal unity of the church has always been its priority. For the past hundred years, and that's 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 the big effect of the the events of the of the early twentieth century. Listen, the the, the 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 role of the Presbyterian Church in the Second World War is actually very interesting. And for example, we declared ourselves in favour of the Republican government in Spain in the Spanish Civil War. We, we, we declared ourselves in favour of the Republican government in Spain, which led the Catholic standard to brand Irish Presbyterian ministers uh, and missionaries in Franco-Spain as 
political subversivists in sanctified gaze. And, um, and we were really anti really strongly anti-fascist in a way that I don't think any other church was. Uh, and that's down to the influence of this Jewish, these Jewish churches that we have in Germany. Because the Jewish, the Jewish churches in Germany were experiencing persecution by the Nazis. Irish Presbyterian meetings have been broken, invaded and broken up by Nazi street fighters. Um, the, the, the main church of the Irish Presbyterian minister was in a, it's now a suburb of Hamburg, but it was then a separate city called Altona. And it was a center of Nazi activity. And the Irish Presbyterian church was as a Jewish institution, one of the targets of Nazi street fighters. So because of that, because of the influence of um, Arnold Frank and Ernst Moser, who came to one of the General Assemblies in the late 30s, having been released from concentration camps where they'd been thrown as Jewish subversivists by the German government, they were only released um, because the British Foreign Secretary intervened personally. They came to the General Assembly and made really fiery anti-Nazi speeches. And the Irish Presbyterian Church was sounding the alarm on Nazism right from the, from the late 20s and before almost any other institution. It's really, it's a really positive thing that our church did. And even at the time whenever it didn't have much influence, it used what influence it did in a really positive way to, to promote racial harmony in a world where fascism was rampant. So our our general assembly was talking about fascism from the night yes from the late twenties we were we were we were opposing fascism. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Really, really strong, really strongly, and you can look back at the at the at the at the at the general assemblies, and they're making really fiery speeches against Nazism and against uh, Italian fascism and against Spanish fascism. And um, as I say, some Presbyterian ministers ended up in concentration camps as the guests of the Nazis. And then um, we we opposed fascism here as well. So the British Union of Fascists tried to organise in Belfast and just couldn't. Um, they they tried to organise and they couldn't get anyone to join them. They just fizzled out. And of course, the, the southern the southern fascist organizations, the blue the blue shirts, and then the architects of the resurrection, they didn't attract many Presbyterians because they weren't terribly Presbyterian organizations. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the architects of the re the resurrection had uh, their slogan was "Armed to take the north," and their principal um, their principal policy on. Uh, Protestant Catholic relations was to expel insufficiently loyal Protestants. Wow. So, I knew many of them. Well, it was, it, was, it was really very keen of them. Uh, really... <laughs> but I mean, there were, there, were, there, were, there, were, there were hardly any Presbyterians in the South at this stage. There, there aren't very many Presbyterians now. We're concentrated heavily in Ulster. Um, and there, there really weren't all that many then. So, Mark, you were saying we, we had Jewish uh, missions out in in Germany, Hamburg, places like that. Did they survive, or how, when when did they cease to be as such? The, the the Jewish mission the Jewish mission outlasted the war, and the Pre Irish Presbyterian Church is called the Jerusalem Church uh, in Hamburg Altona, and it's still going. So it's 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 it 
it was taken over, I think, by um, by the Lutheran Church in the 60s. They, they united with the Lutheran Church in the 60s, and um, they're still going. Well, they had they had the Irish Presbyterian Mission. They had they had outposts in in Danzig and in Syria. Uh, the Syrian outposts were destroyed in the First World War. Uh, quite a few of the workers were executed actually by the Turks in the First World War. The Danzig mission and Danzig was reduced to rubble in uh, in the in the middle 1940s and then it was taken over by uh, by Poland uh, and communism so they were never able to start again there but the Hamburg mission was rebuilt wow. the church there had been destroyed by RAF bombing actually I was looking I was looking at the at the at the dates uh, that the the Jerusalem church in Hamburg was destroyed and it was the same date as a uh, a RAF thousand bomber raid on one of um, the neighbouring cities, and a squadron of bombers, which was based at RAF Aldergrove, took part in the thousand bomber raid and missed their target and dumped their bombs over Hamburg. No now, I I can't say that they destroyed <laughs> the Jerusalem Church, but I can say that there was a bomber squadron based in Aldergrove bombed Hamburg on the night that the Jerusalem Church was burned. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, you could, you, it would be difficult to make it up, but that, that's the way it was. Um, and they re, they rebuilt they rebuilt the Jerusalem Church. It's really very attractive. Um, I I wish I could speak better German. There, there's there's quite a lot of material about the Irish Presbyterian um, Irish Presbyterian mission that I think would be really interesting. If there's a if if you know any German speakers who want to want to do a PhD, I think there's the most fascinating PhD to be. Don't mm. um, I, I can I can I can read German. I can't speak it. I taught myself to read it at one stage whenever I was younger, and I was able to include some of the German material in the PhD. But it's it's not great. There's a lot of really interesting stuff that I I just can't handle. Well, Mark, like uh, the First World War psychologically played a humongous role, you know, in, in the average Presbyterian home. Oh, in, absolutely. In Ulster in Ireland, um, you know, uh, the whole idea not a, not a home was, wasn't visited with death, etc. Um, yeah. What, how psychologically did the Second World War work out for us? What, 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 what was yeah. the effect, you know, on, on Presbyterians here? Well, well, the First World War, they're, 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 you say not a home unvisited. One of the big things that really annoyed Presbyterian leaders in the First World War was that lots of people from Belfast volunteered, but not very many Presbyterians from the country districts volunteered. So people from our parts of the world didn't volunteer in anything like the same numbers as people in, in Dublin and in Belfast in particular did. So that was that set up a country, a country town divide that hadn't been quite as stark before. Second World War, um, lots of Presbyterian churches were destroyed in the Second World War. In the Blitz, I think there were 13 destroyed. And whenever the Presbyterian populations were scattered, quite a lot of them didn't bother joining another church. And um, it really disrupted the Presbyterian community in Belfast, which, um, which managed to stumble on for a long time. And they had a big sort of drive to get nominal Presbyterians into nominal membership of churches. 
and that allowed them to stagger on for a bit longer. If back in the even back in the eighties, I remember you could go to a Presbyterian church that had a nominal membership of maybe six hundred families, and you might find two hundred people in the meeting house of a Sunday morning, and there was a real a really serious problem with nominalism in Belfast at that time, which has resulted in the collapse of the church in Belfast now. But that 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 had its its roots in the disruption of the Presbyterian community in the Second World War, I reckon. And it really was very it really was very um very stark. And also the 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 church, while the church behaved really quite well towards its members who had been bombed out, it was seen as not reacting well to the social challenges of the post-war era. So it was seen as not um, not addressing the problems that people were concerned about in the post-war era. Instead, the, the committees of the General Assembly busied themselves about things that they were interested in and that the ministers wanted to talk about, uh, rather than addressing relevant social issues. So the, 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 the problem of the church not having influence over its people uh, that had started in the crises of the twenties and early thirties was magnified by the disruption that uh, that was initiated in the war, and I, th- I think that's important because um, because in nineteen forty seven, by the time I come to the end of my study, the church has very little political influence, and the general assembly and the synods and presbyteries have very little influence over Presbyterian people. So you've got a situation in Northern Ireland where before long, a strong Christian voice would have been really valuable and yet our church chose not to put itself in a position where it could have a strong Christian voice. I had expected to find that the reason the Presbyterian Church wasn't very effective lay in the 1980s, whenever most Presbyterians were unionists, but the General Assembly and the committees of the General Assembly were not articulating the the, the concerns of most Presbyterians. Mm. But actually, it lies way, way in the past, the, the source of, of the way our church is. Mm. Um, I don't know how you would reform it, but the first step to reform is identifying the problem, and I think I've gone some way to doing that. Um, whether anybody listens to it, I don't know. I can't, I can't imagine they will. Well, we, we, we can't guarantee you a listenership. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, um, I, you, you're, you're, you are the, the, the you, you wield the mighty sword of the media. Um, <laughs> you, you have captivated us um, with this discussion, uh, but we can't guarantee that anybody yeah. else will be listening uh, to this point. <laughs> that, is the, that is the other thing. There, there, there's, there's one other reason that Presbyterianism doesn't have the influence of other denominations. And that's because we don't have an independent press, an independent Presbyterian press. There used to be a magazine called The Witness, a, two, a bi-weekly newspaper called The Witness, very influential, closed down in the mid-30s. And there used to be The Missionary Herald, and there used to be Daybreak, and there used to be The Irish Presbyterian. And those all closed. Um, the Church of Ireland still is the Church of Ireland Gazette, which is an independent Anglican magazine that addresses controversial things in Anglicanism. Methodist Newsletter, it's an independent Methodist newspaper which discusses controversial things in, in Methodism. We have the Presbyterian Herald, which is 
as far as I can see, modeled on Pravda, and which avoids any controversy at all. You read, you read the reports of the General Assembly, you would think nobody had said anything that disagreed with anybody else. And I think that's that's a, that's a, that, that that's something that they certainly make a laugh about it. But I think it is a real problem that we don't we don't communicate effectively to to or honestly to our people as an institution. Yeah, for those listening uh, on audio, you need to realize that Brian and I both muffled our laughter. Um, <laughs> Mark's comment there. Um, I think I think that would be fair uh, to to, to out ourselves uh, on that one. Oh. Gentlemen, I hope you realise we've now been cancelled from the Herald. So uh... <laughs> I have nothing but respect for the Herald. I, I, uh, there, there is, there's at least one section in the Herald that stirs my great interest every single month. <laughs> oh dear! Fascinating. Hey. Uh, Mark, one last wee thing there, you, you, were, you were mentioning there, a, a divide between town and country, between yeah. the cities, uh, well, it was only really Belfast and London area at that point. Um, I'm not class Armagh as a city. Uh, well, right? I love class Newry as a city. Though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, but uh, is that a big feature of Irish Presbyterianism in the 20th century? Oh, absolutely. Um, Dublin was a Dublin had a lot of Presbyterians in it. Um, Dublin had Dublin had quite a few Presbyterians in it at the beginning of the twentieth century, and there was a big Presbyterian community there um, that that was really confident and ha- had a lot of influence over the city's life. Um, Alderman Sir Andrew Beatty was the most prominent local politician in Dublin. That was a Presbyterian. You ever you ever look at um, the Dublin tur- Dublin tourist brochures? you'll see quite often uh, a door that's described as the most photographed door in Dublin, Fitzwilliam Square. Um, Andrew Beatty, a Presbyterian ruling elder in, uh, in Dublin, installed that door in his fantastic Georgian house. But Dublin was, Dublin was, was, was a, had a significant Presbyterian community as well. There's a divide between Belfast and everywhere else. Um, Belfast was a Presbyterian city before the Industrial Revolution brought lots and lots of Irish Catholics in from Donegal and from the hinterland of Ulster. And uh, Belfast was an extremely confident city. And the, 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 there are essentially two divides in Presbyterianism geographically. There's the rivalry between Londonderry in the Northwest and Belfast, and there's a rivalry between Belfast and the country. Um, and the Belfast won the... the uh, the conflict with Londonderry, especially now that there are no Presbyterians in that city, but um, but those are those are those are those are two things that are really noticeable in in, in Presbyterian history. The giant, long-lasting argument over decades as to whether Assemblies College or McGee should be prioritised, and we stupidly prioritised Assemblies. We should have prioritised McGee. We made the wrong choice, but. Um, I'm not sure. Explain that. Explain that. Come on. (laughs) Well, I mean, there there already is a university in Belfast. There there was a college in Belfast that was going to develop into a university, and the Presbyterian, the long-term Presbyterian object, was to establish a university of its own. 
and McGee was to be that university. But the Presbytery of Belfast wasn't very keen on the university not being in its under its control. So they pushed the cause of assemblies over decades until they eventually won. And uh, McGee was stupidly abandoned. Although it's, it's now, it is now a university, isn't it, again? I, but it isn't a very Presbyterian university. <laughs> I mean, there's no question about it. McGee is a university and it has Presbyterian foundation, but it doesn't have any Presbyterian influence about it. Um, well, that's a really interesting point, actually, Mark, because um, if you go back to the 19th century, uh, intellectually, uh, Irish Presbyterianism rode pretty high uh, really across, did. Across, across, yeah. across the world yeah. you know, um, assemblies college in Belfast would have been called you know the the Princeton of Europe uh, uh, I don't know whether that was that accurate or not but you know they had lots of big noises um, James McCosh was here uh, you know uh, the, the can't remember his first name Watts uh, who, yeah. uh, Charles Hodge he convened a, a world council of reformed yeah. Presbyterian churches. Yeah. We, we had a lot of very, very good scholars. Um, we did, yes. What happened in the 20th century? Uh, you know. Well, um, I think there was a, I think there was a deliberate, a deliberately anti-intellectual movement in Irish Presbyterianism, um, probably in the, probably from the 60s. Uh, before the 60s, there were lots of very substantial scholars in Irish Presbyterianism, but they kept really quiet. Um, one of the most influential Irish Presbyterians was a man called Witherow, who was a professor in, in McGee, and he was really influential in pushing this view of the eldership as a, as a single office with uh, a distinction of function. And Witherow is resurfacing now, and lots of these we Presbyterian churches that, uh, that are coming out of the big main, mainline Presbyterian denominations as they apostatize. Um, there are small churches coming out of them, and Withero is very influential in some of those, especially in New Zealand and Australia. Um, and is, Irish is, Presbyterianism had a, a big influence in the past. Withero's actually, Withero's treatise on uh, Presbyterian church government is about to be mm -hmm. by somebody, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I, if you if you go to sermon audio and you look at some of these smaller Presbyterian churches that are springing up, if you if you listen to sermons in church government, you'll hear whether quoted quite often actually. Um, and some of the some of the some of the some of the smaller Presbyterian churches are going even further than 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 we do in our view of the eldership as a as a single office, and they make no distinction between the two. Uh, between ruling eldership, teaching eldership, and ruling elders preach and administer the sacraments in pretty much the same way as teaching elders do, except the teaching elders are full-time employees generally. Can, can you explain that a, a little bit for us, what you mean exactly there by the distinction and, and, the, and the, you're saying we're one-office church? Yeah, well, I mean, there are a number of different, different views that Presbyterian churches have uh, of the eldership. There are essentially three views. Um, there's a view that prevails, predominates in churches which uh, are most influenced by historically English Presbyterianism. And that's that the ruling eldership and the teaching eldership are two offices, that they're different offices. Um, there's a, there's a, a view that's 
predominant in churches that have been influenced most by the Church of Scotland, where the ruling eldership and the teaching eldership are one office. Both teaching and ruling elders are apostolic bishops, but they are distinguished by order, that the teaching eldership is a superior order to the ruling eldership. And then there is the Irish view, which is that the teaching eldership and the ruling eldership are both apostolic bishops, but they are distinguished only by function. So the difference, the theoretical difference in the law of our church um, between the ruling eldership and the teaching eldership is that the teaching elders have particular functions in terms of preaching and administration of the sacraments. And um, while it isn't talked about much by ministers, uh, John John Lockington wrote um, uh, his doctoral thesis on the, on the, functions, the, 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 the bodies and institutions of the church, and he almost ignores it. There's a sort of conspiracy in the, in the ministry to ignore the fact that the code says that uh, the law of our church is that uh, elders, ruling elders and teaching elders hold the same office and are distinguished only by function. That's, quite, that's been quite a distinctive thing about Irish Presbyterianism. Um, the Church of Scotland has adopted some of our practices recently, in the early 21st century, the Church of Scotland have started having ruling elders lay hands on teaching elders at their ordinations, which used to be a really distinctive thing about Irish Presbyterianism. Okay. And we were, the, we were us and the Southern American Presbyterian churches, we were the only people who did it. But now the Church of Scotland has adopted that. So, um, so maybe we're having some sort of positive influence in the Church of Scotland. Mm. <laughs> well, there's another interesting point as well, Mark. Um, uh, you know, in the in the 19th century, you know, Presbyterianism, um, from my understanding of it, was uh, post-millennial. It was looking for a, a worldwide revival of the church, which was going to be a, an establishment of a Presbyterian kingdom that would span the globe, uh, and Christ would return. Absolutely. Um, uh, and we still look for that, obviously, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't. It didn't really come off. Um, you look at you look at you look at what Presbyterian Irish Presbyterian ministers were doing um, at the beginning of the twentieth century. There wasn't. There was no TV. Uh, people for entertainment went to lectures. Uh, serious. Lots of people went to the theatre. Lots of people went to music halls. Serious people went to lectures. And there are Presbyterian ministers doing the lecture circuits who are preaching on how in the new century the um, the papacy will be vanquished from Ireland. Ireland will be the last great battlefield between Protestantism and Catholicism. And the winning of Ireland for the, for, for, for the kingdom of Christ was the object of the church in the 20th century. They were very, very optimistic. But the First World War sort of knocked that on the head. Um difficult to maintain that position after the First World War and even more so after the Second World War. In German, Germany, the, the great the great Protestant Christian nation had done something worse than any nation had ever done in the history of the world. It was a bit of a knock to confidence. But I mean, even in terms of like, uh, you know, a world Presbyterian outlook, 
Mm. In the 19th century, there was massive links between and America, Presbyterianism in Canada, Australia and the domains, you know, and and there was communication there. There was a lot of backwards and forwards. Then all of a sudden, early 20th century, it all kind of just doesn't happen or disappears. Yeah, what what, what happened was that in the at the end of the 19th century they were committed to unity between presbyterian churches so the irish presbyterian church was really influential in the world association of churches holding the presbyterian system but what they did in the early 20th century the post-war 20th century was that they recommitted themselves not to presbyterian unity but to church unity and what you get is church unions so the canadian presbyterian church melted itself into the Canadian Anglican Church and you get a sort of anodyne, vaguely evangelical body who isn't Presbyterian. Same thing happens in Australia, the United Church. Same thing happens in India, Church of South India, Church of North India. Same thing happens in England, the URC. And um, Presbyterian churches refocused themselves away from cooperation with other Presbyterian churches towards church unity, church reconciliation, they called it. And uh, as I think I said earlier, our church would have joined with the Church of Ireland in one of those unions if the Church of Ireland had been up for it. And it isn't our fault that the Presbyterian Church in Ireland survives as an independent body. Wow. So the, our existence is, is, is reliant on the Anglicans here? Well, maybe not. Reliant on their refusal. I think that if the Anglicans came and asked for union now, I would do my best to influence the General Assembly to say no. And I, I imagine there are others here who would want to do the same. But at a time, the General Assembly was willing to countenance union with the Church of Ireland. And the only reason they didn't do it was that the Anglicans wouldn't play. So for centuries they tried to get rid of us, and then all of a sudden their chance was there, and they missed it. <laughs> Listen, um, there's there's a there's a song that talks about did you kiss the boot that kicked you, and uh, the General Assembly of the Church of Ireland took that opportunity with gusto. Let me just say to my brother-in-law, I'm, I'm very sorry for, <laughs> for any offence I've caused to my Anglican friends. <laughs> well, here's, here's an interesting thing. Here's an interesting thing. The structure of the Anglican Church is an imitation of the Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Because at, at, um, at this establishment, there was a big conference of the, Pre- of the Church of Ireland at which the Northern Church of Ireland laymen came down and tried to create a fully Presbyterian Anglican Church. And they didn't quite didn't quite succeed, but the Church of Ireland synodical structure is a copy of the of the Irish Presbyterian General Assembly. And the Church of England adopted the Irish Anglican system. So if we have any influence, if we have any influence on the wider church, that's that's a really serious one. It's completely accidental and wasn't our fault. <laughs> there's a, there's a theme there. Uh, there's a theme running through this. Well, I mean, accident. I say accidental. I mean, providential, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, that, that has been an absolutely fascinating um, discussion um, on, on a period of time in which you know, I think most of our own folk don't know anything about you know the early 20th century, what was going on in our own, own denomination church. I certainly um, didn't whenever I started out. Yeah, I, I, I and I think it, it, it really is worth um, 
find out a wee bit more about that. Mark, I take it you're going to publish your PhD thesis and you're going to publish it with Brill, so it's going to cost £180 or something on Amazon. No, and that's I'm, I've, I'm not. I'm not. Um, I, I've, you know, um, the, my external examiner was really, really complimentary. It was uh, uh, the most flattering thing that any man has ever said to me was Professor Alva Jackson said that my, my thesis was, um, what did he say? Uh, very well written and studded with wisdom and in, uh, with wit and insight. Uh, the most flattering thing I've ever ever heard from a from another man, and I think I could probably publish it academically, but I don't want to. I want to publish it so the Presbyterians can pay a tenner and buy a copy of it. So that's my object. Um, right. I'm not interested in an academic career. I'm a parish minister. That that is the thing to which I'm called. I'm called to preach and evangelize and administer the sacraments. So I think it, my, my academic career is a non-starter, and I would like people to be able to read about their their history. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Any idea of a timescale? Not at the moment, but I mean, if if I, can, if I can't get somebody to publish it uh, in that way, I'll publish it uh, myself. So I mean, it'll not be it'll not it'll not be all that long. I imagine I'll find someone. I, I think there's probably a market for a work of Presbyterian history, and um, I find it really interesting. I, I don't want to publish it with an academic publisher. I want to publish it if I can in a way that means that people can buy it and read it. Well, that, I suppose, um, it, it brings us on a, a little bit to people People should read this. Um, we find this discussion very, very helpful. Um, I think, you know, people could go back and count the number of times that either Brian or I have said fascinating uh, oh. during this uh, this recording. Um, but we've also discussed the the anti-intellectual side of our of our denomination, yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's something that that we um, as as parish ministers and pastors are keen to to counter. Um, uh, talk to us a, a little bit about how perhaps the person in the pew can go about um, educating themselves a little better, and, and then also uh, sell us on on UTC and okay. benefits. Well, I was really disappointed and unhappy that the Queen's Link was was broken. Perhaps it was inevitable, but it was a really valuable thing when it when it while it lasted. And I was sorry to see it go. But um, the, the the church has actually <laughs> made quite a good hand of dealing with the aftermath of it, and they have managed to in UTC set up an institution and create a relationships which allow us to have something very much like a postgraduate university under our control um, under the control of the General Assembly. And uh, they offer lots of part-time courses. They offer part-time courses from A-level standard um, and uh, through a partner university undergraduate standard and postgraduate standard uh, for for people who who are at all academic levels and it, it's it's really encouraging that that's there that people are able to access that solid academically based Christian learning within our church uh, it's 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 actually fairly good value as well especially if you're if you're looking for postgraduate study it offers um, it offers master's levels degree, level degrees in theology, which are very good value, which are good degrees. They're, they have substantial academic co uh, content. They are recognised by everyone. They are proper degrees. They're not like the ones that sometimes come out of America. You never know whether they're real or not. 
UTC degree, a PTFA degree is a real degree recognized by everyone. And it's there to be used by Presbyterians and it's accessible to Presbyterians. And uh, I really encourage people to go to, to go and use UTC if they can. You contact you contact the church, you can do it over the internet, or you can do it by post, or you can pick up a, a tele, telephone and phone them. And the people at the office in UTC will be very glad to guide you through the process. Um, I know that some of the academic staff have been willing to speak to, to potential students individually. It's a great resource that our church or people should be making the very best use of. And you can do some of that study uh, almost completely online as well. You don't even you can, your house. Absolutely. It's, very, it's a very convenient thing. It's a very cost-effective thing. And it leads to recognized qualifications. They're, they are not Mickey Mouse qualifications. They're the real thing. And the courses have real substantial academic content. So if you, if, if you access a course at UTC, you're accessing something that is really valuable and useful. We, we, we do have a, have a real suspicion of learning in many parts of our church. And I think, I think that's something we should do our very best to dispel because a person who avails themselves of education increases their understanding of God's word and about God's world and increases their effectiveness as, as evangelists and as Christians, I think. Amen to that, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, www.union.ac.uk. Yeah, that absolutely. That should take you to Union Theological College if you want to check it out online. Yeah. There you go, gentlemen, up there. We've give you a plug. Um, maybe yeah. we'll get a discount. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't be holding my breath, man. <laughs> I doubt it very much. They're, they're, they're good value to start with. You can't, you can't, you can't complain about good value. <laughs> um, no, it's, been real, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, thank you for talking to me. I've really, I've really enjoyed the opportunity of talking to people about this. My family are bored of it and listen to me anymore. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well mark we really enjoyed it it's been a fascinating discussion on a on a really uh, interesting topic um irish presbyterianism in the early 20th century uh who, who knew all those different things uh, uh, weird and wonderful ways in which irish presbyterians have done things and decisions that they've made um uh, before we even came online we, we were discovering that uh we we shared a model of the deaconess with the koreans and and we've even got a link to, to 20th century totalitarianism in Irish presidentialism. <laughs> oh, we absolutely do. Um, we, we have a model of deaconesses, which um, derives in part from the Korean model and uh, the current dictatorship of, of dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, his great granny is seriously considered to have been a Presbyterian deaconess in Korea. Um, the records in the records in North Korea aren't all that great, but uh, there there is there is a serious belief that that she was actually a Presbyterian deaconess. I'm not sure how she would have viewed her posterity. <laughs> there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Anybody who thought Irish Presbyterianism was dour and boring just does not know its Where history. Thought, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Mark Wilson. Um, that was a it's only a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us uh, this evening. We hope you really enjoy uh, this podcast. And uh, uh, Jimmy will 
talk about the future and see what happens if we can find somebody else to come and talk to us. Indeed. Yes, thank you very much, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. All, All right. the very best. Bye. Bye.